This is the Marketing Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Emmanuel Probst. Emmanuel's background combines over 16 years of market research and marketing experience with strong academic achievements. And he joins me today on Uncorking a Story to discuss his career and latest book, Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Emmanuel. Mike, thank you so much for having me on the show and it's great to connect with you and your community. Really appreciate that. Well, I love I love having you here and I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of my guests, uh, which is where does your story as an author begin? Yeah, I think my story as an author begin with my story in market research about being curious about people in the world around me. And that was about 17 years ago. And I think the, the first tip maybe for our listeners today, Mike, is to be an author, you just have to write. Uh, and you can do so at the back of a napkin. You can be an author if you decide to be one. You don't have to write 12 books. You can, but start with writing a punchline. Start with writing a short paragraph about an article, a campaign, um, something in the news that you enjoyed reading. And now you're an author. How did you get involved in market research? Because I, you know, I, I've worked in, and in my audience may or may not know this because they know me as an author and, and as a podcast host. They don't know that I've had 25 years of experience in, in qualitative research and user experience. But how did you get involved in, in this industry of ours? Okay. The truth is, initially, it's because I needed a job. I was a student <laughs> and, and I was studying full time during the day. And I got that job in a, call center, um, overseeing people doing interviews for a market research firm in London. And once I graduated, I really enjoyed being curious about people. Why do they do what they do? How can we build better brands? How can we market better products? And that's how I started in the industry. And I never looked back because the fulfillment, Mike, 
is about discovering new things and meeting new people each and every day, reading about new technologies, reading about new ideas. And that is what makes market research, in my opinion, so fulfilling and so compelling. Yeah, I, I know you've got to have a certain skill set when it comes to market research. You know, on the quantitative side, you, of course, have to know statistics and research design, experimental design. On the qualitative side, you know, you have to, you know, have some real good interpersonal skills because you're interviewing people and you're meeting strangers and you're getting them to talk and feel comfortable. But the one thing that can't be taught is curiosity. And I think that's one thing all market researchers share in common, which is this just, you know, real natural curiosity for the world around us and for the people around us. And I also know that authors have that too. Um, so that's one thing that links market researchers and authors together is this just, you know, real, you know, over-indexing on curiosity. I'm, and I'm curious about your take on that. Yeah, I think that is what makes the industry exciting and fulfilling. Uh, to be blunt, if you want to make dozens of millions of dollars, go to investment banking. And if you want to make millions and millions of dollars, maybe work for a big four, become a, a senior partner at PwC and you'll do well. Uh, if you're curious about the world around you, and if you enjoy discovering new ideas and then disseminating new ideas, that's what I do. Well, this industry is for you because it's a never-ending uh, opportunity to learn and meet new people. And I enjoy just as much sharing my ideas and my knowledge with our listeners today than I do listening and learning from other folks, whether they're very senior. This week I was at a conference and I learned from a keynote speaker, very, very interesting, but also learn from the most junior people in our organization who know way more about pop culture and social media than I do. Yeah. But my big question is why can't we make millions and millions of dollars? And and be curious as as researchers. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that? Well, first, I think uh, traditional market research doesn't scale very well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, I don't mean to make this conversation unromantic, but it's a labor of love, right? It takes a lot of hours and a lot of manpower to deliver those insights. So in sharp contrast with technologies like what we see from the likes of Google and Amazon and so on and so forth, what we do doesn't scale well. It scales better than it used to. By all means, we now have technology platforms to scale the research, but the advisory part and the analytics don't scale that well. Yeah, uh, that that's true. And I know that very well in, in qualitative. It's very hard to scale qualitative, especially traditional you know, person to person. Although I do know somebody who made millions of dollars who worked for Ipsos, left Ipsos, started a company, and then sold it to Ipsos. So, oh, it wow. is uh, it is possible. It is possible. Uh, well, I do want to talk about the book, Assemblage: The Art and Science of Brand Transformation. What can you tell us about uh, the book? Yeah, it's a good segue, Mike. Reflecting on what we discussed so far, that is, it's about being curious. So, for this book, I took a step back and looked at the world around me. And what we see is people don't care about most brands. And most people don't want to acquire any more products. And also, 
too many brands have been force feeding us too many products that we don't really need. So how can we build products and how can we build brands that make sense and that are more valuable, trustworthy for everyone? And really to succeed, what I see is brands must transform us and the world we live in. So here's what I mean. Yes, as a brand, you can create a product that delivers a functional benefit. And that's important, right? You want the product to be well-priced and reliable and to ship on time and have great customer service. Sure, this is great. Beyond that, you need a product that is going to transform me as an individual and the world around me. And by transformation, I mean, I want a brand that is going to take me from who I am to who I want to become. That's what I mean by transformation. And I want a brand that's going to make a positive impact on my local community and a brand that is going to help transform the world in terms of sustainability, but also economic recovery, upcycling, recycling, and so on and so forth. Brands have this opportunity to make a positive impact on the world and have this opportunity to make a positive impact on individuals. I'm not even saying consumers, individuals. And this book shows you how. What, um, you know, you, you talk about um, brands, brand transformation, um, and, and, you know, really helping helping people like aspire to something. And I'm trying not to use the word consumers here because I don't want to slip into marketing speak. Um, but, you know, I remember, you know, starting my career, you know, between 25 and 30 years ago, I, I've lost count. <laughs> we didn't really think in those days of, of brands as something that could um, really transform us as people. And, and, and at that time, brands weren't really thinking just yet about sustainability and things beyond, you know, solving some kind of uh, customer need. It, it's just interesting to me to see over the years how the role of brand has changed from something that's sort of emotional to something that's aspirational to now something that's trying to do good in the world, not just clean your clothes. Um, I'm just curious as to kind of your take on how, how brands and branding has changed over the years. Yeah, I keep it short. In the 60s, 70s, you had Madison Avenue and advertising agencies would sell cigarettes and alcohol. And 2000, thanks to the internet, we started blasting people with even more messaging, some banners and some buy now, buy one, get one free type of messaging. And then fast track to 2010, 2015, what have you. This accelerated again with social media. Well, let's blast people with even more messages across even more channels and try to force feed them even more brands. So here we are 2023 and you go to any grocery store and you can pick from 100 different, 150 different SKUs, meaning uh, types of popcorn or toothpaste or what have you. So. We're overwhelmed with products and brands everywhere we go. The next step is how brands, how can they differentiate? So people are overwhelmed with consumption. They have way too much on their plates, too many brands to choose from. In the meantime, government agencies and the media in particular have not done a good job at tackling those issues such as sustainability, such as um, 
news, well, tackling fake news and deep fakes and misinformation and disinformation. And uh, we have struggled as a society with the concept of um, monetizing data, right? That is taking data from people and monetizing data. So that's all to say that people, individuals, one, have way too many brands to choose from, way too many products, are completely overwhelmed with marketing and advertising messaging that's meaningless and tactical. Two, no longer trusts as much as they used to the media and uh, government agencies. Therefore, from there, emerges a new role for brands that is to, yes, move products because we're in business to make a profit and also educate people on acquiring new skills and help the world with sustainability and transform people by contributing to their identity project and also contribute to local communities so that we enjoy the places where we shop and work and dine. So brands are taking a role that is more important. And as such, this book is really optimistic. It's to say we marketers and brand strategists and market researchers have an opportunity to make a positive impact on people, a positive impact on the world. Who's doing it well? Now, can you point to any brands who, who you feel are, are, I don't want to say checking all the boxes, but, but doing all of these things and doing it well? Yeah, well, at different levels, we can think of big brands. We can think of a brand like Nike that contributes to, and sure, they move product, but they also contribute to promoting notions of diversity and equality and giving a chance to be everyday athlete. We can think of a brand like Dove, Unilever. And I think that's a terrific example of delivering a product and delivering a purpose that aligns with the brand and the product. That is the real beauty product, project, I'm sorry. Dove shows you the limitations of social media, what real beauty is about. Oh, and by the way, how to be uh, really beautiful, authentically beautiful. Well, that's by using my product that is Dove. So yeah. those are two examples of brands that do well, but you have much, much smaller brands that do the right thing in the local community, energizing the local community with brick and mortar stores, for example. And don't believe people that tell you brick and mortar retail is dead. That's absolutely not true. Ever since the pandemic has ended for sake of argument, let's say that it's over, but we see people going back to physical stores and we see brick and mortar retail going faster than e-commerce. And that's because people are keen on this interaction, on this discovery. And that's where brands can step in. I want to reflect a little bit or ask you to reflect a little bit on the role of risk. I mean, we talk about curiosity, but there's a risk that comes. And, and I'll go to that Dove example you gave, because I was working on the Dove brand in the early 2000s at Unilever in, um, in the United States when they were putting together the campaign for Real Beauty. And, you know, I was you know, glued to the Super Bowl when they launched, we called it the little girls ad, but, you know, yeah. internally. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big risk. We are, we're making a, a, a strong, we're taking a strong point of view, but we're launching it on something like the Super Bowl, which is, you don't typically see 
Dove advertising on the Super Bowl. You know, you got your Budweiser, you got your, you know, your, your tech firms and stuff. So there's a risk that comes with doing this. Um, but it feels like there should be because they're doing the right thing, but yet there's risk associated. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yes. And I would argue that the risk is getting greater every day for at least two reasons. One, because people react, people talk back at brands. So people will promote, but also condemn and even cancels brands that seemingly don't do the right thing. And two, because we live in a world that's increasingly polarized and at least in uh, North America. And an example of the last few days is AB InBev with Bud Light wanted to advertise a campaign that was inclusive and the spokesperson was a transgender individual and it completely backfired at Bud Light whereby the most conservative areas where the product is being bought, specific zip codes, you see sales going downhill by double digit, by 20%, literally in some counties, in some specific DMAs, business going down by 20%. And to make things even worse, this business is going straight to Coarse Light and Miller Light. So not only Bud Light is losing clients, customers in the short term, but it remains to be proven that these people will go back to the brand over the next few weeks, over the next few months. So back to your point, Mike, the risk is great and is greater than it has ever been. And where do you draw the line as a marketer between doing the right thing, being intentional, and convey the right message versus going too far and you misstep and you offend a big chunk of the population. And that's a constant struggle. That said, my short answer to your question is the cost of inaction. If you don't do anything, if you don't take any risk, well, you will be a brand in a sea of seamless because in light beer, just like in toothpaste, just like in sports apparel, and just like in breakfast cereal, the very last thing we need is yet another brand. Right. You know, what I'm wondering about Bud Light is, and, you know, culturally they're doing the right thing by, by putting an inclusive message out there because, you know, we believe inclusivity is, you know, they're, they're a good thing. Do you think it's a, a, a notion that they just didn't, really fully understand who their core consumer is. And if they had done some research on this, could that have prevented them from making, uh, making this worse? Thank you for bringing this up because I gave it a lot of thought this week. One, let me be honest, had I been VP of marketing at AB InBev, I think I would have commissioned that campaign. I think I would have thought it, you know, because too many industry analysts they look at things in hindsight and say, oh, what were they thinking? And well, no, that's unfair. They gave it a good shot. Had I had this job, I would have done the same thing. And two, it's so hard to predict how the market is going to react. And I give them credit for taking the risk. I really do. However, to your point, what could we have done differently? And my market researcher's Ipsos answer. Uh, is let's test 
you don't even have to test the campaign. Let's test the concept of, hey, we are going to have a transgender spokesperson in this campaign. And I'm going to test that idea, not just in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, because those markets are very progressive and certainly not among my group of friends and employees, because those are acquired to my brand. But I want to test this in the South and in more rural areas and in places where I move a lot of products, yet maybe are likely to be more conservative, if you will. Now, the last point is the thing that AB InBev could not have anticipated, in my opinion, is you have some people reacting to the brand because they want their 15 minutes of fame. And when a specific country singer is going to use a automatic rifle to destroy a bunch of bottles of Bud Lights, I cannot help wondering, is this individual really angry at the brand thinking we are stealing part of his America? Or was he seeking publicity for himself? And in this case, I argue it is the latter. Yeah. And I, I haven't, I, I know who you're talking about. I won't say his name, um, but uh, I hadn't thought about him for years until. Well, that's the thing. And now all of a sudden he's all over the news. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I'm not commenting neither on his music and his talents as a musician or as a performer. And neither am I uh, urging his distaste for the brand. That's his prerogative. And by all means, that's his right to dislike the action that AB InBev has taken, that is to enlist this, this transgender person. However, in the way he articulated his point of view, well, I believe that is a way to ensure some publicity for himself and candidly, we would never have talked about him this week had it not been for him destroying a bunch of uh, beer bottles with a machine gun. Right. Right. And, and you know, from an Irish person's point of view, that's a cardinal sin uh, from, from my people is just letting all that beer go to waste. It's just not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, uh, you know, you you might be Mike. So one of those guys wearing the t-shirt, uh, save water, drink beer. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Yes. Well, you know, we're talking about, you know, art and science of, of brand transformation, um, and you know, the principles behind it. I think of our industry, kind of the market research industry as an industry that has gone through a lot of transformation, let's say since let's say since the dawn of the digital age, you know, since the the mid nineties, when I started um, getting involved in the business, what could researchers learn uh, um, from your book in terms of what are some of the things that, you know, modern day researchers need to oh, consider um, coming out of your book? Yeah. One of the many learning outcomes from, from researchers is to take a different look at how we, segment markets, how we approach a specific market and uh, what I called the, the new era of brand relevance. And here's what it means. In traditional market research, you look at a category and you consider competitors. So if you're in vodka, 
uh, you're going to consider Tito's versus Belvedere versus Gregus versus Absolutes. That's the traditional marketing research way to look at the market. However, first off, those are not competitors. By consumer standards, these are alternatives. And two, that's not how people shop for vodka anyway. When you're about to buy vodka, you don't think, well, hmm, I'm going to benchmark Tito's versus Belvedere versus Grey Goose. You shop based on an occasion. What is the mission I'm trying to accomplish? See, we're going back to transformation. So what I'm trying to, to accomplish here is I'm putting together a barbecue party in my backyard or a nice dinner for my significant other or I'm gathering with my friends for, from college, or I'm celebrating a milestone, like maybe a wedding or a graduation or possibly a, a bar mitzvah, right? And to accomplish that mission, well, what do people need to drink? And here I'm not considering vodka in isolation. I'm going to buy some vodka. I'm going to buy maybe some champagne. I'm going to buy some white wine, maybe some salsa maybe some solo cups, maybe some mixers, depending on the occasion. It's absolutely fine to buy Tito's as a mixer for my backyard barbecue party and to buy a bottle of Grey Goose as a more sophisticated option because my best friends are coming over and I'm having a, a some sort of, if not black tie, but uh, celebration at my house, right? And it's the same thing when I go out. I go out to a club and it's the end of the night. I don't really care what they're going to use for my gin and tonic. And conversely, if I go out to a very upscale dinner at a very nice restaurant, well, maybe I would want a certain type of bourbon to mix in my old fashioned. So always to say that market researchers must learn to consider the world through the lens of people, not even consumers. And again, what are these people trying to achieve? Who are they trying to become? And from there, consider those categories and segments in this case, in terms of moments of conviviality. That is the work we did at Ipsos with Pernod Ricard to target alcohol drinkers based on why do they gather? Why do they buy that product in the first place? And from there, try to own the moment and not so much the category and certainly not a hypothetical competitive environment that does not exist as such in the mind of consumers. Yeah. I mean, nothing, these decisions, we often think maybe they happen in a vacuum, but they really don't, you know, they, they really don't happen in a vacuum. And the way we research people, whether it's through surveys or, or data analytics or, or focus groups, um, you know, qualitative, um, we rely so much on, on recall. Um, and we don't really keep in mind the the context in which they're making a decision because you can't replicate that. Uh, or you, it's very challenging to replicate that, I, I should say. Yeah, the recall also is very much a phenomenal metric, whereby I might recall the brand, but possibly for the wrong reasons. And that doesn't mean it's going to translate into a purchase. And we just mentioned Bud Light. And... We remember Bud Light this week for some challenging reasons. And with all due respect for Bud Light, I'm not going to go buy the product this weekend. I forgot the last time I 
even hardline beer. So the opportunity for the product again is to transform me into whoever I want to become. And if we go back to vodka, and by the way, we're uh, talking a lot about alcohol today, Mike, so I feel we should remind our listeners uh, to consume alcohol responsibly. If you go back to Belvedere and you look at their latest ad with Daniel Craig, and Daniel Craig is on a bridge in Paris and he's wearing something very, very formal, very James Bond-like, it's a white suit, and progressively through this ad, he transforms into someone who is a lot more progressive, a lot more um, outlandish, if you will, almost flamboyant. and. That's what the product does for, for him here. Belvedere, the vodka, facilitates this transformation in Daniel Craig from who he is, that is a very formal, very public school preppy British spy, into who he wants to become, a very progressive, flamboyant, expressive individual. And in this context, Daniel Craig, or the viewer for that matter, is the hero, not the product. That's also something that marketers and market researchers must remember. The product is not the hero. The hero is the individual who is going to buy the product to transform into what he wants to become. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, marketing and research um, during our conversation, Emmanuel. And now I want to talk a little bit more about you. And one way I want to do that is through pop culture. So I'm curious, uh, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Uh, <laughs> take a wild guess. I mean, one TV show was Starsky and Hutch, and to this day, I still hope that I will eventually own the Ford Grand Torino. <laughs> I was going to say that the 1976 Ford Grand Torino with the, my the brother one. and I. My brother and I used to call it the Nike car because it, it looks like it's got the Nike swoosh, you know, oh, right on it. Yeah, oh, it's very similar. Yeah, uh, maybe the other way around, but you're right. Uh, but that was an important TV show for me. I think well, it, and it still is. What was it? What was it about Starsky and Hutch that you like so much? You know, we can link it back to advertising. It's this concept of an anti-hero. Dave Starsky is far from perfect, um, and they triumph eventually and they solve problems, but they meet roadblocks, challenges, and also they take shortcuts. And that's an elegant way to say that they have practices sometimes that can be highly questionable. Yeah. When they see Huggy Bear and, and, uh, but we side with them, we side with them because we know they want to do the right thing. And. That's this concept of an anti-hero or this archetype of anti-hero is also an archetype that I zoom in on in the book. That is anti-heroes are relatable because they can accomplish a mission, yet they're flawed and meet challenges, but we side with them as long as they want to improve. And that's why we like James Bond. And that's why we like Tony Soprano. And that's why we like Don Draper. And that is why in advertising, uh, some brands such as Equinox Health Club leverages the archetype of the anti-hero very successfully. Yeah, I love, I love the idea of the anti-hero. I think, you know, before, I'd say probably before the 70s, 
you know, you had your very traditional white hat, black hat, good guy, mm -hmm. bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, things became, you know, pretty predictable. Then, you know, you've you've got the shows like Starsky and Hutch. And and I whenever I think about antiheroes, I typically go to Don Draper because he's here's a guy that he, he does so many bad things. He's not a mm -hmm. good person, but you root for him because you see maybe a little bit of hope in there. And that's just just that little bit is enough to keep you interested in his story and his backstory and and where where it'll eventually go. And then he creates the ad for Coca-Cola. <laughs> Spoiler alert for anybody who didn't see the last episode, but that was on quite a while ago. <laughs> How about music? What did you like to listen to when you were growing up? What makes a good song, I feel, just like what makes a good book is a song that you listen to today, but you will enjoy just as much, if not more, in 10, 15, or 20 years. And I can think of Stairway to Heaven, for example, as a great song. I can think of Nirvana. Uh, those are examples of um, soundtracks that have been with us for many years and will be with us for many years to come. Again, I cannot help bringing everything back to marketing, branding, and advertising, right? whereby a brand that resonates that makes sense, that people will be loyal to is a brand that is meaningful and fulfilling as part of an identity project and a brand that is genuine and authentic and intentional. And those are the brands that will stand out, not just this weekend at the shelf, but in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. And that's what those are the types of brands that we need to create here. And that's the whole point of this book assemblage on how to create those brands so that they succeed in the long run. In contrast with pushing whatever down your throat, that is tacky advertisements to move product over the weekend, which does move product over the weekend, yet does not translate into any kind of brand desire or brand love or brand equity or preference or distinction. You mentioned Nirvana before. I, I, I do have to go back to that because, you know, and this might sort of highlight what, you know, what, what we've been talking about in terms of the theme of the book. But I remember, you know, my mother could tell you where she was when Kennedy was assassinated, mm. right? She could tell me, Michael, I was in you know, working as a, a secretary in, in an architect's office in Midtown Manhattan. Like, she could rattle that off. I remember where I was when I, the first time I heard Nirvana smells like teen spirit. You know, I was uh, in high school. I was running. I had a radio. I, you know, we had radios back in those days. You know, no MP3 players, kids. And, and I heard the song, and I was a big hard rock and heavy metal fan. You know, I listened to all of that stuff. Poison, Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Iron Maiden. And I hear Nirvana, and I'm like, the world just changed for me. Like, because they took a sound, and then everything else just died off. Like, mm -hmm. you know, think about those other genres of music as, as brands. Those brands got a lot less market share after, you know, Nevermind comes out. Um. And it just, it was like something that happened in the culture. Um, and I'll just, I'll just never forget it, but, but it transformed. I mean, to me, that music, and then of course the grunge movement came, but um, really transformed music as, as a brand for me. 
Yeah, it's fascinating how one song, and not even one song, but the first 10 seconds, yeah. 15 seconds of a given song, might can have a power to make this lasting impression on people. And in that regard, I believe, and that's what I strive to achieve um, on a smaller scale than Yovana, of course, but I believe that when you grab a book, it should instantly appeal to you and transform you. And in an ideal world, that's also the brand should work. And I'm not saying that you will have an epiphany each time you go to the store to choose some toothpaste or popcorn. However, again, the brands that will stand out, the brands that will be with us for years to come are the ones that trigger this special thing in you. So we, uh, you know, of course, you've written a book. You've written more than one book. I know that. Um, but in, in your past, I'm sure you've written academically. Um, you've written in the business world. I'm sure you've written your fair share of, of not only proposals, but research reports and, of course, long form uh, with regards to books. What have you learned about yourself over the years as a writer? Yeah. Well, reflecting on academic writing, there is a wealth of knowledge and fantastic ideas in academia. However, it is formatted in a way that is very exclusive. Uh, whether it's the layout of a language or the type of research that's conducted. So that's to say that in academia, you get tons of excellent ideas, very, very robust, very well informed, yet most of the time they don't, well, most of the time academics fail to translate this into the world of practitioners just because they are bubbled in the academic publications. Conversely, when you read what practitioners publish, often, not always, often you read things that are really shadow and you always land on the same case studies and you often read a repeat of something that has been done already, but there's just a new acronym or a new buzzword, which makes it very annoying. So what I try to achieve in my writing is to bring to readers the best of both worlds. That is, my book assemblage, The Art and Science of Grand Transformation is rooted in consumer psychology, whereby I reviewed something like 200 plus. You have all the references at the end of the book, so you can check for yourself, but 200 plus references drawn from academic publications in consumer psychology. Yet I translate this one into something that is, that everyone can read. You don't need to have a PhD to, to read this content. It's very accessible, but two, most importantly, in something that matters for the everyday practitioner, whether you're a very senior CMO with 20 plus years experience, or if you're fresh out of school and you've been in your role for six months, and maybe you're actually looking for a role and you just want to come up with smarter ideas. You want to be smarter for your clients, for your colleagues and for your boss. And that's when you grab the book. So there is an opportunity 
to make academic knowledge more accessible and conversely to make practitioners writing more robust with stronger foundations. And again, that's what I strive to achieve. And uh, since we've been talking about the book, Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation, Emmanuel, tell us where can listeners purchase a copy? Yeah, thank you, Mike. The book is available on Amazon and from Barnes and Nobles and other outlets. And of course, the easiest way to find and buy the book is on Amazon. Again, Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. And I'm delighted to say that the book is also available as an audiobook. That means you can grab the hardcover copy when you like books, if you feel like reading, which a lot of people do, and or you can also listen to the book on your way to work or your way to dinner when you work out or when you cook or what have you. And of course, you can also uh, read the book as an ebook. So all those formats are available. Of course, it's the same content across all these formats, but catering to different readers and uh, different contexts, when, why, and how will people grab the book? So I try to practice what I preach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, very smart. And, and Emmanuel, if people want to connect with you, do you have a, a website or some social media handles you want to, to share with the audience? And the best way for our listeners today to connect with me is just to find me on LinkedIn and connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, you can find me simply at Emmanuel Probst with two M's. Very good. I'll be sure to put all of that in our show notes so people don't have to search too hard. They can just uh, look at the show notes for this episode and see all the various ways to buy the book as well as to connect with you, Emmanuel, with two M's. Uh, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much, Mike. And thank you to your community for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.